Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Uh, Welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. Hi, I'm Bill, and each week on the Living Free Show, we showcase one of the 12-step programs that assists recovery from drugs, alcohol, gambling and food addictions. Our guests share their recovery story and highlight that shared experience saves lives. Today, my guest is an alcoholic, uh, recovering with the help of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, we'll be discussing how AA helps alcoholics and problem drinkers. So, Steve, welcome to the show. It's lovely to be here, Bill. Thank you for having me. No worries. So we usually start talking about growing up and childhood and family and things that influenced you to take the path you took. So what was your family life like? Well, I grew up in what I think would be best described as a sort of middle-class English family. We lived in outside of London in a place called Surrey, which in those days where we lived, you needed an ordnance survey map to find us. Uh, Nobody knew where we were, and people that lived in London thought we lived in the Outer Hebrides. And it was a very sort of parochial, middle-class upbringing. I went to, um, you know, regular day schools, etc. And really up until about the age of seven, I would say my childhood and life was very, very happy. I didn't really ever feel that I was different or or, um, any different from anybody else. And uh, it was really from uh, from the age of seven that things kind of seven to 13, where things started to change. So was there any alcoholism or any other addictions in your family, extended family or your family? No, it's interesting that um, there is actually no uh, history of it in my family, which doesn't mean to say that um, that goes one way or the other. I've learned quite a bit about this uh, this disease or disease, as I say, um, but uh, no, there was no history in, in my family at all of this, but um, I guess I was the first one. <laughs> I broke the duck. Right. Yeah, it, it often uh, skips generations. I had a, an aunt. Her father was an alcoholic. And when she first had a drink, her tongue swelled up and so she never drank again. Uh, and then her son was an alcoholic. Yeah, people can, I guess, mask it in some ways, if they know it's a problem, they just shun it. Yes, they can. And the other thing is that in the case of my family, you see, my mother lost both of her parents during the war when she was very young. So it may well be that there may have been something there that we don't know anything about. But as far as I'm aware, there wasn't any um, uh, any history on it. Yeah. Okay. So what happened when you were seven? So when I was seven, uh, like in, I'm sure, probably in Australia, what happens is at the age of seven is a change in your school. You go from sort of a a junior to a middle school. I went to a middle school and from the age of seven to 13, I went to a a school that I liked very much in the area. But I definitely started to feel different from and that's the beginning, I think, of it different from other people. But at the seven to 13, it was a day school. So I was able to go home. And uh, I had a good friend who lived near me at home. And I think I was able to deal with the fact that although I felt different from some of the others, you know, I was able to go home. But when I was 13, I was sent to a boarding school. 
and I absolutely hated it. I hated everything about it. You can probably tear from, tell from my hairline bill that I'm not 25 anymore. And uh, in those days, when you went to a boarding school in England, it was pretty Victorian. There was still beating. In fact, the older boys were allowed to beat the younger boys in those days. And there was a lot of bullying. Now, we didn't call it bullying in those days. It was called uh, growing up to be a man. But it was bullying. There was a lot of inappropriate sexual behavior on the part of the teachers. There was a lot of inappropriate sexual behavior on the part of the uh, other students. And a lot of it happened at night time when the dormitory was in theory dark. And I felt absolutely that I just wanted to run away and escape or at times just die. I just didn't feel comfortable at all with what was going on. And I didn't really understand what was going on. That was the point. I didn't understand because I didn't know any different. And uh, basically at the age of 13, I think was the beginning of when I had my most dramatic change in my life. I was a very happy young boy up until the age of 13. And then this experience at this boarding school really affected me badly. And I hated every day there. I used to have terrible nightmares. I used to dread going to bed at night because that's when all the crazy things would happen. People would jump on top of the bed and beat you up or they'd try and, you know, touch you inappropriately or whatever it might be. And then, of course, during the day, you had to avoid the, the masters, the teachers who were also trying to do other. It was just a nightmare. And we actually went, me and another boy actually went to report the science teacher for doing some inappropriate things during a class. And the headmaster basically sent us away telling us, don't be ridiculous. You know, and if you if you start making a fuss about this, um, you know, will cause you problems. It was it was very much in those days, you know, respect your elders, respect your teachers and, and, and your elders couldn't do anything wrong, even though they were doing plenty of things wrong. I hated it there and I used food. I used sugar. I used chocolates. I used sweets as the only escape I had from dealing with this very, very unhappy life. So I went from being a very happy child loved being at home, loved having my two best friends there, to being absolutely bullied, abused, and uh, very unhappy. And it, my life took a complete U-turn. So did you have any friends at that school? Anybody you could call a friend? No. no, nobody was my friend there. Because what happened at that age, when you were 13, and I remember this very well, if you were popular, you were very popular. But if you were unpopular or you were picked on, it wasn't cool for anybody else to become your friend. It wasn't good for them, no. No, it wasn't good for them. And if somebody did, I remember there was an American boy that became quite friendly with me for about a term, but he was basically talked off. He was said, you know, don't get friendly with him because, you know, we're picking on him or whatever they, whatever, I don't know what they said, but it was very clear that it wasn't a good thing associated with me because I was one of the, and there were a few of us like this, it wasn't just me, that were the ones that were picked on. So did you get together, the ones who were picked on? Was there anything you could do? There was no solace at all. And in the end, my saviour was my grandmother uh, because my parents were, you know, they didn't know that what they were doing was wrong. My father in particular was just trying to do the best thing. You know, they were a middle-class family that had saved money to send me to a good school. You know, they hadn't had the benefit of this kind of education themselves. And... They believed that, you know, this was the right thing to do. It was, the, it was the early 70s. And the only thing I can remember about that time that I remember enjoying was watching 
I remember Princess Anne getting married to Captain Mark Phillips. I remember that in 1973. I remember watching a cup final of a football game, but I don't remember anything. It was just a very dark period. And I got my grandmother, who was very, very sensitive and really, she was a tough woman, my grandmother. You know, she's a very tough woman. She ran a business and she, she was a, an immigrant that had come over from the Ukraine and they'd survived the pogroms, they'd survived the Nazis in Germany. You know, she was a tough woman. And she basically said to my parents, you know, this is not right. You've got to take him away. And after I pleaded with them and didn't succeed, because my father felt, you know, stiff upper lip, you know, you know, the kind of thing. No one talked about feelings. No one talked about sexuality. No one talked about anything like that then. No one talked about any of those things. But what then happened was that I got her, which I suppose was my first example of manipulation. <laughs> I used my grandmother to go and see my parents and say, you've got to get him out of that school. So how did she manage that? Well, it was convenient that my parents had moved to London at this point from the outskirts of you know, deepest Surrey. And as you're moving to London, you should take him with you, with you. And I had a younger sister who obviously was still at home. So she said, why would you want to leave him on his own at this school? She basically was very clever. She knew exactly what to do. I didn't know what she was doing. And they took me out of that school and uh, I moved to London with them. I remember the day they took me out of that school. I don't think I've ever been as happy as I was uh, when they took me out of that school. We moved to London. It was the summer of 73. I remember I had the best summer that year because, you know, I was free. I felt like I'd been in prison. But of course, without realizing that I had this ism, of course, very dangerous to me for, to go from one extreme to the other. And I went from, if you like, complete imprisonment to complete freedom. So I very quickly, and I was now 14 and a half. So at 14 and a half in England, you could easily go and buy alcohol and you could certainly go into a pub. You weren't supposed to be in pubs or buying, but in those days, nobody cared. Yeah, it was the same here. People think things are pretty strict these days, but they, they were pretty lax back then in, by comparison. Yeah. Well, and also remember that this was a time when if you uh, were working, I mean, obviously I wasn't working then, but um, they stopped putting us up chimneys to sweep chimneys. But if you were working, it was totally normal to go out during lunchtime and have a few beers and come back to work. Now, if you did that where I work now, you'd be dismissed. But, you know, and so actually I went to a day school and I there was a, a guy that went on the bus with me to this day. school. I loved it. I thought, oh, this is wonderful. I'm going to school. I can come home. And of course, the first thing we did at lunchtime was they said, you can go out at lunchtime for an hour. And there were boys and girls at the school, which, of course, was totally new to me. And they said, um, well, we're going to go to the pub. So <laughs> here we were at 14 and a half going to the local pub to have half a pint of lager or a pint of lager. So between the ages of 14 and a half and 16, I went to the pub every day at lunchtime. Not really what you're supposed to be doing at school. No. <laughs> So did your eating continue as well, or did, the, did you swap that for the alcohol? No, no, no. I, in the true um, obsessive-compulsive person that I am, I started smoking, I was eating, I was drinking, and at 14 and a half, I was well on the way to being, you know, having a problem. And bear in mind as well that in those days, if you came home from school and you smelt of cigarettes... Um, to be honest with you, people weren't really paying attention. And 
there was so much, you know, people smoked on buses and people. So I just say, oh, you know, I was sitting next to a woman on the bus who was smoking. And that's why I smoked cigarettes. You know, it was very easy to get away with all of this. Yeah. So how did it affect your schooling? Well, it completely affected my schooling because I failed every single exam that I, in those days we took O levels and I took um, 12 O levels when I was 15 and a half, 16, and I failed every single one of them because I did no work. I remember my father sat me down and said, well, you know, this is absolutely ridiculous. You know, you, I can't believe you. I didn't, I didn't even get a C or a D in it. I just failed everything, you know. I mean, I, I went to the exams thinking I could just make it up as I went along. doesn't quite work like that. So he said to me, I'll, you know, this is costing me, you know, he used to do this whole thing about it's costing me a lot of money to send you to these schools and so on. And because they didn't have a lot of money, they were middle class. So I said, well, I don't want you to waste any more money on this. And actually, this is where I, for the first time ever, took matters into my own hands. And um, that summer, I registered for what was called Further Education College, which was effectively a government system where you could take your O-levels. But in subjects that were not just maths, geography and English, you could take things like economics and um, law and you could take a handicraft. You know, you could like learn how to be a carpenter or you could learn, you know, there were guilds and things. And what I loved about this was, first of all, it was my decision. I, I was taking matters into my own hands at the age of 16. And secondly... I didn't feel like I owed my parents anything after this, you know. So I went, unbeknownst to my father and my mother, uh, I went and registered for this college. I took 14 O-levels the next year and I got all A's and B's. And I realized, and I could prove to them that I wasn't stupid. It's just that I didn't like where I, and I'd had too much freedom. It was, it was the antithesis of everything before. But during that time that I was taking all my exams and, and, and I worked very hard in that year, I remember I came home and I did homework every day, but I loved it because I was happy, but I was drinking every day, you know, still went to the pub, but the difference was actually doing some work at the rest of the day. And I did very well in those exams. And so I convinced my parents to let me continue in that system, which obviously my father must have liked because it saved him some money. And I went on to do three A-levels. I got very good grades in my A-levels. Uh, drinking more and more and getting more and more drunk during the process. Well, I left um, school, uh, you know, high school, college, went to university. I considered to be university to be three years of an opportunity to basically drink as much, have as much sex as possible and do as little work as possible, because that's what you did at university. And hopefully at the end of it, come out of it with a degree because I was blessed with a reasonably sharp brain. And by the way, Bill, that's something I've noticed about people in AA. I haven't met too many stupid alcoholics, funnily enough. It tends to be a good degree of intellectual intelligence. It's just that we don't have a lot of emotional intelligence. And I didn't have a lot of emotional intelligence at all. I didn't understand my feelings. But I knew that when I felt different, or if I felt upset, or if I felt uh, that I needed a bit of what we used to call Dutch courage in those days, you know, to, to get up the, you know, to, that I would drink. Um, and I drank a lot at university. I drank most of the time. Uh, a lot of other people drank a lot of the time, but I drank a lot more than, than other people. And there were a group of them that were the big ones. Yeah. So when did you realise that you drank more than other people, that you needed to drink? Yeah, not until I was working. I came out of university, I got a job. And those days you could get a job when you came out of university. What a lovely time that was. 
I got a job and, uh, you know, I was being paid, I'll never forget, £9,000 a year, which I thought was an absolute fortune then. I mean, it's £9,000 I'd ever had before. And I was living at home, so I didn't have any rent, didn't have any expenses. So I basically decided that the 9000 could be spent on me, you know, which pre predominantly meant alcohol. And then um, I realised that I could drink a lot more than other people because other people would go home at like 10 o'clock. But what we would do in those days, you see, is we'd go out for a drink at lunchtime, let's say one o'clock, you'd come back to the office at three, drunk, you'd work until about six, 6.30, normal people would go home, we'd all go to the pub, stay in the pub till 11, go to an Indian restaurant or something, and then stagger home somewhere or other, and then just do it all again the next day. And that's when I realised that I could see, I didn't think it was a problem, but I could see that I was different from other people in that respect. Yeah. So you said you went with people. So was it the same people? Yes, it was always it's it sort of what I called the diminishing group. You'd start off with about 20 of you and then it would go down to and then the, the first group of people would leave and eventually it would get down to the last two or three. And it would always be the same two or three, It'd be me and a couple of others. And I do remember, actually, I suppose there's nothing really funny about alcoholism, but I'll tell you a story that I thought maybe think, oh, I hope I don't end up like that. The managing director of the company that I worked for was obviously a very serious alcoholic. And it was a joke that if you wanted to see him, you had to see him in the morning because in the afternoon, he'd be hiding behind a newspaper. You'd hear this kind of like behind the newspaper because he'd be opening up cans of beer. And one day we were in the pub and the police came in and said, oh, do you know where Mr. X is? And we were told, don't say anything. Uh, one of the um, lawyers there said, um, why are you looking for him? And they said, well, because when he drove off in his car, he hit three cars and he left his license plate on the, the license plate fell off. So, and I thought it was very funny. It wasn't funny, he could have killed somebody, but you know, that was the insanity. It was all, in those days, it was all funny to be drunk. It was, it wasn't a problem. You know, you weren't considered to be an outcast. Now you were an outcast if you were lying in the street in a brown coat and, but if you were drinking in pubs or, better still drinking in expensive hotels out of crystal glasses there was nothing wrong with you you were just like everybody else I mean there was a pub on every corner everybody drank and you drank when you were happy and you drank when you were sad you drank at a funeral and you drank at a wedding it just wasn't drinking was part of it was an occupational hazard yeah strange isn't it it has changed, but um, there's still there's still pockets like that in real terms. Yeah. So, did you suffer from blackouts? Um, initially, no. But what happened was, I, like everything else in my life, tended to do quite well at what I did, and I worked in the entertainment business. And the entertainment business was full of excesses, and um, that's where I first discovered drugs. I then went from drinking to doing drugs and uh, the combination of drinking and drugs definitely caused me to forget what had happened the night before and I remember the very first time that happened was it was quite early on I think I was probably 25 26 I was on the phone to a friend of mine who had been to France on holiday and I said to him oh you know we really must talk about and he went Steve what are you talking about we had a 45 minute conversation last night about that I don't remember a thing about it. So have you found yourself in difficult situations following a blackout? 
Well, fortunately, no, in the sense that I was always usually at home when these kind of things happen. But what I did do was I got myself more and more into difficult situations and compromising situations. And as I continued to do better in my career, um, I left England and I went to live in America. And that's when the fire turned into a conflagration uh, because it just, you know, talk about going from the frying pan into the fire. You know, I went into the, um, into the inferno. And the other thing it really affects is relationships with, with family and friends and intimate relations. So did your family realise what was happening? They knew that something was wrong. What happened was this. I, um, it absolutely, Bill, you're right. It, first of all, it affected my performance in all areas. It, afford, it affected my sexual performance because when you're really pissed or you're high on cocaine, you can't do anything, um, although you think you can. And my problem was always drinking because I wouldn't do drugs unless I drank. So in other words, I had to drink. You know, I wouldn't go out and think, oh, I must go and do some drugs. I would immediately, drinking would be the gateway. I would end up in situations that I never would dream of ending up in with people I would never dream of ending up with. And in fact, if anybody's seen the, I'm not trying to draw exact comparisons, but if anybody's seen the Elton John film, you know, the Rocketman film, yeah. what's great about that film, what I love about that film is it shows the absurdity of how you can go from being, you know, a relatively normal person to behaving in this insane way and doing all these insane things. It's got nothing to do with being gay or straight. It's just, it's to do with the alcohol and the drugs and the so on. And what I love about that film, and in fact, if you read his book, which is even better, which is a, a much better version of the, of, of the film, it really does explain it. And I was just like that. You know, I would go from being in a relatively safe environment at four, four or five o'clock in the afternoon to being in a very dangerous environment by eight or nine o'clock in the evening and actually the next day trying to work out where I was. Yeah. It affected my relationship with my family because the more I drank, the more I needed money. So the more I would lie and steal about money and I would um, not st steal, not as in going to rob people, but I would convince my, my family in England that I needed money. And they couldn't understand it because I was earning quite a bit of money in America, but I always seemed to have no money. And then to try and uh, make up for the drinking and, uh, and all the rest of it, I started to gamble a bit. And of course, gambling is a, there's a great expression, you know, how do you make a small fortune start with a large one? Um, and uh, that's what I did. You know, I started off with a reasonable pot of money and I managed to get it all down to a very small, because of course, the way an alcoholic thinks is the way to get out of this situation is it's not my fault. It's everybody around me. It's all a conspiracy. Nobody likes me. And those feelings, actually, the reason I, I'm glad you asked me about the early days was those feelings of when I was a little boy of 13, it starts to feel like that again. And those feelings are what I've now discovered are what uh, I have to watch out for. It's the feelings that get me drunk, not the facts. Yeah. Also, I've learned from a lot of gamblers that gambling, it's not about the money. It's about being able to forget about everything. It's really about paying money to forget about everything in real terms. It starts out being about the money, but it's eventually about just trying to forget about everything else. That's exactly right. And in fact, um, what I did, because I was living in Los Angeles, this was all prior to 9-11, you could fly to Los Angeles to Las Vegas in 45 minutes. It was a bit like a bus journey. 
and you could show up 15 minutes before the flight, which I invariably did, uh, run to the gate, get on the plane, and within an hour you could be sitting at a, a table or a machine. And what I would do is I would leave the office at around about three o'clock in the afternoon, tell people I was going for a meeting outside of the office, you know, very important meeting, run to the airport. There was a little local airport where we lived in, uh, in a, not, not, not the main Los Angeles one, a local one in Burbank. And um, I could be in Vegas by five. I would stay there till the end of the evening. And there was an 11.30 p.m. flight out of Vegas that got me back into LA by midnight. And uh, I would get home, you know, everything would be as if nothing had happened. Um, invariably, there were large amounts of money that, you know, large amounts in the sense of thousands, not hundreds, um, you know, two or three thousand, you know, four or five thousand. But as you say, it's nothing to do. The funny thing was, it didn't matter whether I won or lost, because if I won, I would just go and spend it. You know, I'd go out and buy myself. If I lost, I'd feel pretty shit and I would immediately want to go back to win it back. But actually, during the time that I was gambling, that was the most peaceful because I was away from everything. I was, it's, a, it's just like drinking. And one of the expressions I learned when I went into Gamblers Anonymous and, and at the same time as I went into AA and something else, which was over 12 years ago, um, was uh, gamblers never lose, they nearly win. Yes. And that's something that I, I learned very early on. Yeah, that's good. If it hadn't have been for that last card, if it hadn't have been for that guy falling over in the penalty area, you know, and, and getting, you know, I would have won. And that's how casinos and everybody else uh, make you think. Yes, yes. So with, with your gambling then, was it mainly casino games or was it pokies and things like that as well? No, it was, I, I didn't like, um, uh, I didn't, I, I liked being like everything else. It was all about me. And it was all about me feeling good. So I like to go to places that made me feel good. And casinos are very good at doing that because what they do is they make you feel very, very good. And the more you spend, the more they give you. So the more you spend, the bigger the rooms become, the bigger the meals become, the bigger the, you know, they send a limousine to pick you up at the airport. You, the idea is to make you feel like a king so you lose as much as possible. It's a good ploy. It works. Yeah. And what actually happened, uh, I'll sort of get to the point here, my gambling and my drinking and my uh, drug addiction became so bad that I went to see a doctor and I said, I'm very depressed, but I omitted to tell him that I was drinking and taking drugs. I told him I was gambling because I thought, well, that's okay. I can tell him that. So he prescribed me some pretty powerful, this was in America in the nineties when they were less regulated than they are now, prescribed me some pretty powerful medications and it doesn't say anywhere on the bottle, please take these medications with copious amounts of alcohol and cocaine. It doesn't say that anywhere. I thought, well, as it's been given to me by the doctor, it's perfectly safe. And as a result of it, I became even more depressed. And in September of 2008, I decided to take my life. Yeah, it's, um, it, it's not uncommon because alcohol is a depressant. So people don't really realize that it's adding to the problem rather than reducing the problem. We see alcohol as something that makes us feel reasonable, but too much of it um, has the opposite effect. Yeah. Well, too much of it, it's 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 the downers um, of the alcohol, you know, the the shaking and the and the and also the other thing is, 
when you drink a lot, you have to make a lot of excuses and you have to go back and apologize for all your behavior from the day before. So I'd be spending the next 24 hours making up for all the terrible things I'd done the day before. And I got to a point where I was very depressed. I was taking far too many pills. I was drinking too much. I was, you know, gambling money I didn't have. I was borrowing money from people and losing it. And one day I woke up and I decided that there was no way out of this problem. It had got too big. And I remember very clearly what it, well, that day, and I will never forget that day, I went to the pharmacy in Los Angeles where I got my medication and I wanted to die. It's very difficult for me to think about these days, but I did it. And I've, I've met lots of other people in the program that, you know, and this is why I encourage people to talk about this stuff because it's not, you know, it's nothing to be ashamed of. Now, fortunately, um, I don't know how, because the doctors told me later that I must have had the constitution of an elephant. But uh, what happened was I was unconscious for, I suppose, somewhere from between 11 a.m. till about 7 p.m. And because of the persistence of somebody, somebody went round to my flat, which was a complete mess. I hadn't opened the mail for months. There was old food cartons there. It was a complete tip. I was existing, I wasn't living. And um, they found me unconscious on the sofa and they called the uh, paramedics. I was taken to a hospital. And the thing I will never forgive myself for was my parents who were living in England, who uh, were elderly and my father who was very, not very well at the time, received a phone call from uh, the doctors in Los Angeles saying, we need to get him out of here, but we cannot guarantee that we're going to be able to do this and somehow I don't know how I pulled through it and three days later I, I woke up in the intensive care unit of a hospital in Los Angeles and just to show you how insane I was that would normally be for most people enough I decided that I didn't know what I was doing this was ridiculous I mean I'd failed but failed at the attempt but I the doctors didn't know what they were talking about and I discharged myself against med medical advice and went home and thank God, one of my few remaining friends, because, you know, you lose most of your friends when you're drinking. One of my few remaining friends who lived in L.A. came to see me the next day and said, you're very ill. And I said, I know I am. And he said, um, I know what's happened. I know what you've tried to do. It's not a secret, Steve. If you do what I'm going to tell you to do now, I'll help you. If you don't, you're on your own. And he basically had got together with some other people because I didn't have any money. I'd lost all my money. I hadn't paid my rent for months. I had no money. I was, would have essentially been homeless at this point. And uh, he arranged for me to go to a rehab. I went into that rehab and I was told, you know, you are very, very lucky to be alive. And if you want to get sober, then you're going to have to listen to us. Now, P.S. Bill... I had been to meetings previous to this. I'd been to AA meetings. I'd gone along, you know, it was in Los Angeles. It was all very fashionable. Um, you know, you met nice people at these meetings. You know, a bit like there was a movie actually made at the time called The Player. And one of the lines in The Player was, you know, the guy said, oh, I didn't know you were an alcoholic. And the guy says, I'm not an alcoholic. It's just where all the best deals are done. And, you know, I thought that was very funny. I thought it was all very amusing. It's not funny at all. It's life or death. And uh, I went into that rehab having been to meetings and heard these 12 steps and I said um, is this what you're going to teach me here and they said yes and I said well I could go to meetings for that and they said well if that had worked you wouldn't be here 
So I was told to shut up and listen. And I spent 33 days in this rehab. Um, it was a horrendous time because you go through a tremendous uh, sort of detox of all this stuff that you've been putting in you for years and years. And it was a pretty horrible first week. But they make you go through it because it's the only way you can understand how awful it is. I mean, the withdrawal is horrible. Uh, but about 10 days after I'd been in there, I think I had had the worst of the withdrawals and they started to work on getting me sober. Again, it's, it's not for people who need it. It's for people who want it. And I wanted it because I realized I had nowhere else to go. That's all I could. I, I had no, no, if I, if I left that rehab and had gone back to using and drinking, um, like I had done when I went to meetings several times, you know, I would have died. So what was it like talking to other people who had the same problem as you? Uh, had you ever talked to alcoholics before in an honest way about the problem you have with drinking? No, um, because when I'd gone to meetings prior to that, I use an expression which is, you know, you can't be a little bit pregnant. You know, you either are or you're not. And you've either got to be honest or you're not. And I had always told people some of the truth, but not all of the truth. So when I came out of rehab and I was, you know, sort of trained into going to meetings and listening and sharing honestly, which is really what they do, they teach you. Rehab is not going to get you sober. Rehab is a way to learn uh, for people like me that needed thumped into them. And there are lots of people that never have to go to rehab. They can go straight to meetings and get sober. In fact, there are lots of people at the moment who've only gone to a Zoom meeting. They've never been to an in-person meeting. I started to get very real with people. And the more real I got with them, the more honest I was with them, the better I felt. Did it help you to understand the disease concept of alcoholism? The fact that it wasn't your choice, it was the fact that you had you were predisposed to it? Yes, although I was taught in the rehab that that isn't a cop-out. No. You know, it's very easy to say, oh, I'm ill, I suffer from a disease, none of this is my fault. That's a cop-out. You have to take responsibility for what you did, but it's also okay to understand that it wasn't your choice to be afflicted with this. But it was my choice to go as far as I did. It was my choice to continue to do some of the things I did. But one of the things you learn in AA is that step one, which is the concept of being powerless over something, which I didn't understand at all because I thought I was in control of everything. And the answer to that is if I have one, one is too many and a thousand isn't enough. So the best thing I can do is not have the first one. Yeah. And usually the issue is that when you have the first one, you're sober. And so being sober is no protection. Correct. And, and of course, it's not, it's not about sober, it's abstinence. You see, I thought that abstinence was sobriety. It's not. Abstinence is just not drinking. Sobriety is where you're not drinking and you're working a program. Yeah. yeah. It's about your thinking. Yeah. How did AA start to help you initially? What was, the, what was the first thing it helped you with? Well, the first thing it did was it made me feel that I wasn't alone that I wasn't something, I wasn't somebody that was different from everybody else. Go back to what I said at the beginning about at the age of 13, feeling I was different from. I didn't feel different because all the things that I felt and thought other people were saying, which was wonderful to hear other people say it. And then I started to feel um, that I was amongst people that understood who I was. I didn't feel I was judged for what I said. And some of the weirdest and craziest things that I was thinking I would sit in a meeting and somebody would say it. And I go, well, how do they know that? 
How do they know that about me? And of course, it's not about me. It's just a common thread that runs amongst, and there are now millions of us around the world that go to meetings and have recovered. And if you think about it, something that started in the 30s, which is a very different time, you know, it was a very sort of, you know, Christian approach then, but it's, it's not a religious program. It's one of the things that I was told at the beginning that's got nothing to do with religion. This is to do with spirituality. And I thought spirituality was people holding hands and going, um, and all that sort of stuff. Spirituality is about living your life the right way, doing the right thing, admitting you're wrong when you're wrong. I know that I make mistakes. I make mistakes every day. I make mistakes with my daughter every day. But I, the difference is I can actually say, you know, I'm wrong or I'm sorry, where I never could have done that in the past. No. So one of the important things in um, recovery is about being honest with yourself and others. So how's that changed your relationships with people? Well, the first thing is that what I learned was that to get my relationship with my children back and anybody else that was in my life, I had to develop trust. Because you see, without trust, no one's ever going to believe you from one day to the next. You know, I had spent years not being trustworthy. So I had to start building trust. And trust is developed by doing, saying you're going to do something and doing it. So for example, you know, I remember when I used to go and pick my children up from my ex-wife's, you know, I was always determined never to be late because I knew if I was late, people would say, oh, well, you know, without drinking again, you know. So developing trust, just doing, not making promises that you can't keep. And the other thing is looking for ways in which the sort of the ism can come through the back door. So I'll give you an example. When I first got sober, I was smoking. I was smoking little cigars and cigarettes, and I would go out onto the balcony and smoke, and I would sometimes try and hide it from my children. And I realized, you know what? If I start doing that, then that's the beginning of dishonesty. So they would go, ah, we've caught you smoking again. And instead of denying it, I just, I'd have to learn. When I was drinking, I would deny it. But I had to learn to say, actually, yes, and, and not lie to them. Because if I lied to them, then they'd know that, I was back in that old behavior. Even today, my daughter will find me eating some chocolates or something that I shouldn't be eating, right? And she'll tell me, and instead, and you know, I, I just, I don't, I, I put the, the wrappers in the bin. I don't try and hide it now because there's no point. The, the hiding is not, you know, now it doesn't mean to say I don't have a secret drawer somewhere where I keep a little bit of chocolate, but I'm not doing the things which would be very detailed ways of working out how I could try and hide things from people and the reality is people know what's going on you know somebody once told me in rehab I'll never forget this it's not who you see it's who sees you that you don't see yeah that's a good one so rebuilding your relationship with your children obviously takes time and trust yes but have they had to seek help for themselves you know having a dad who's an alcoholic or not well both of my children, it did take some time and I was separated from them for a while because I had to move back to England because I, first of all, I needed to go back to England uh, because my father was very ill. And secondly, because it was actually the best thing that could happen because I worked on getting, you know, I had to get sober and that took the best part of the year to really get some good grounding. And at the time I thought it was all a nightmare, but actually it was the best thing that could have happened. And I went to meetings every day. I took care of my mother after my father died. I had to take responsibility. I had to be a responsible person. I 
was able to build my relationship with my children, which was not easy because obviously my ex-wife was pretty unhappy about everything. Leaving aside whatever problems she had, I'm sure that having been living with me wasn't easy. So therefore she didn't make it very easy for me. And it kind of made it difficult for me and my children to communicate with an 11 hour time difference. But I stuck at it and I would, I remember my youngest daughter sometimes didn't want to speak to me when I called and she would only uh, sit in front of the screen and type rather than speak to me. It took her a while to, because it was very painful for her. She didn't understand why her dad had, you know, why is daddy living somewhere else? Um, why can't he just come back here and get a job and everything will be okay? And every time these calls would end, I would be in floods of tears and I would be terribly upset. And a very good friend of mine in the program, who is still a very good friend of mine, said to me, Steve, I know this is painful for you, but if you want to progress, the best thing you can do is stay well. And if you stay well, anything is possible. But if you don't stay well, you'll lose everything. Yeah. And so I worked very hard on that. And eventually, you know, they talk about the promises in the, in the meetings, you know, the promises. Now, I thought the promises meant I would get all my money back. I'd get the job back. You know, so, no. The, the funny thing is, Bill, I have probably 10% of what I had when I got sober. You know, uh, sorry, prior to getting sober. In other words, you know, I earn 10% of what I used to earn. I live in a place that is 10%. You know, I have much, much less materially. And if you'd asked me at the beginning, you know, you'd be living where I'm living now and living, I'd say to you, you're completely out of your mind. That's never going to happen. I probably used to tip people more than I earn in my grandiosity. But I have traded all of that for 100% of my happiness. Yeah. I have both of my children back in my life. My children live in England with me. Had nothing to do with me. They came here because they wanted to be here with me. And... Um, years ago I got to walk my eldest daughter down the aisle and she turned to me and said dad I'm so happy you're here and you know because 12 years ago I would have been dead yeah it's pretty dramatic isn't it uh, the turnaround I mean considering where you came from so are you involved in AA today in a service I go to meetings um, at least three to four times a week on zoom now I think during this period of COVID which is Perfect for alcoholics because it's isolation. You know, alcoholics love to isolate. So what better than to be told by the government, you must isolate. So if I was drinking, and I know that there are people perhaps that are listening to this that are maybe drinking, maybe trying to get help. I understand what that feels like. And when you're on your own and it's just you and your head, the only thing you can do is deal with that by trying to get away from it, whether it be eating, you know, it doesn't matter what you do, whether it's eating, sex, drugs, alcohol, it doesn't matter what it is. It's about getting away from those feelings. And when you can go to a meeting, and the great thing about Zoom is I can, and that's how I met you, Bill, um, I can go anywhere in the world without leaving my living room now. Yeah, I agree. And, I, and I'm really surprised the number of new people that are visiting meetings as well, um, who've never been to a face-to-face -face meeting, who front up to a zoom meeting and i think it's just amazing that they're willing to do that well yes and i think the big you see at first i didn't understand that but having listened that's something i never used to do uh, i would talk but i wouldn't listen having listened to people that have come in and there's one person i know that got sober 
in March of, of this year by coming to a Zoom meeting, I asked him, why did you feel comfortable coming to this meeting with all these faces on a screen and so on? He said, well, first of all, I didn't have to say who I really was. I can put down a different name, although he chose not to. Secondly, I don't have to put the screen on if I don't want to. I can just put my voice on. A lot of people just put, you know, John just listening. Yeah. Because the difference is you couldn't go to an AA meeting dressed up in a, you know, an outfit and a black cloth over your head, you know, but you can go to a Zoom meeting anonymous. It's real anonymity, actually. Yeah. And remember, the second day of, of, of Alcoholics Anonymous is the anonymity. So actually, I think Zoom makes it easier for people. And I would encourage anybody listening to this to try it because you can go. You don't have to put the screen on. You can be completely blank. They don't have to know who you are face wise. I used to think, oh, my God, if anybody finds out that I'm coming to these meetings and they, somebody says, well, actually, Steve, I'm sorry to surprise you with this, but everyone there has the same problem as you. And it's not all about me. But the thing is, if you are worried about, you know, joining a meeting, the great thing about Zoom is you can go anonymously. And when you feel comfortable, you can speak up and, and so on. And, the, and you'll realize very quickly that no one is really that interested in anything other than their own recovery. And that's what bonds us all together. So we're trying to help everybody else. And uh, it's actually, I think Zoom is here to stay. And I, there are a number of people, I think in Australia, I'm correct in saying that in the state of Victoria, um, you've um, been able to go back to meetings. Um, whereas if you live in New South Wales at the moment, it's, uh, or is it the other way around? I can't remember. But the, the point is, is that, um, no, it's in Victoria. Um, but a lot of the people that have been to the uh, in-person meetings again have come back to Zoom saying they prefer the Zoom meetings. And I certainly, I have to tell you, as much as I probably will go to a, an in-person meeting at some point in the future, if there is one, I really will always keep with these Zoom meetings because I've got friends in Australia and I've been to her meetings on a beach in Hawaii when it's midnight in London. I love it. It's fantastic. Yeah, I agree. I didn't get a sun That was the only negative about it, you know. Yeah, it's, uh, I have the same feeling. I, it was the last thing I would have done before COVID-19 was to go to a, an online meeting because I had absolutely no interest in it. Yeah. But being forced to convert our meeting into a, an online meeting and to see how people, you know, function and the fact that people are willing to join the meeting, you know, new people are willing to join the meeting and, you know, people join from all around the world and it, it actually expands the fellowship rather than reduces it, which is what I thought it would do. Yes, and, and what's really nice, Bill, you're absolutely right, it does, ex uh, to use your words, expand it rather than reduces it, is a nice thing about this is, as you say, there are people who have never been to an in-person meeting who have got nine months sobriety. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah, it's the same in Alan. Um, you know, it's just amazing mm -hmm. being able to transmit the message without actually talking just just through the meeting without talking to them afterwards or anything they they get it and it's just you know, it really is impressive and um you know it, it's great to see that people are, are recovering just by going to those you know those meetings and and the benefit of having them uh, particularly for people who are isolated and there's a lot of you know people who are quite isolated in the country in australia who don't have a local meeting so, yeah, it's really good. Yeah. So they can just go to as many meetings as they like in the city without travelling. Yes. Well, I think, 
I think wasn't it in Australia where you had the first flying doctors where people would fly to different yeah. parts of us because they didn't have a doctor near them so they needed a doctor. Well, we kind of developed the flying doctors for AA now because we can go anywhere in the world. Yeah. Um, because if you're sitting isolated in a big city or for that matter, isolated in the middle of nowhere at the touch of a button. And here's the big thing. Prior to Zoom and prior to uh, this sort of COVID period, I didn't trust the internet at all. I thought that anything I said on the internet would be would be broadcast that, you know, but actually it's the antithesis of that with Zoom because Zoom, first of all, you know when someone's recording or not recording. Secondly, the person hosting the meeting can place restrictions on, you know, so, you, you know, and if you get somebody trying to come in, we used to call them Zoom bombers at the beginning who'd come and try and infiltrate meetings. Now they have a person in the meeting who watches out for people like that. And um, they become extremely secure. And in fact, they're more secure than in-person meetings. Yeah, that's right. They're actually turned out to be a wonderful way of communicating. Yeah, and more convenient. <laughs> yes, I didn't have to go anywhere. Yeah, yeah, yes. Okay, well, listen, I think that probably brings us to the end. But um, if anybody would like to find out more about Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, then you can find them in Australia on 1300 two, or you can go online at aa.org.au for more information and details of your local AA meeting. Uh, so that's uh, about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Steve for sharing his recovery experience with us and talking about how AA has helped him. Thanks. Thank you, Bill. And um, one last thing to anybody that may be listening to this program. It's okay to feel that you're different and it's okay to feel that something uh, is wrong. And trust me, if I can do this, you can do it. And I wish you the best. Thank you. Uh, I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when we'll be talking about food obsessions and feature some members of Food Addicts and Recovery Anonymous. Uh, thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay tuned now for more Radical Radio on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.